Paul, thank you very much. And as I was sitting here, I, I received an answer to a question that one of my grandchildren asked and startled Patty and myself at the time. You know how grandchildren always ask you a question and you're not quite prepared for it. And uh, our granddaughter Catherine said, Granddaddy, why is it that you are always looking up? Always looking up. And you know, I thought about it as I was sitting here and realizing that I was looking up right into the cross here. And I know that became probably uh, a pattern in my life when I had the opportunity to be the pastor here. So maybe that answer will satisfy my uh, granddaughter. I don't, I don't know. But uh, it's good to be with you today. And I thank very much the invitation to, to be here. Thank Tim for inviting me. I want to say just a brief word about Wesley Glenn. Wesley Glenn is one of the six agencies in all of Methodism that serves adults with developmental disabilities. And we seek to do this through 31 residential sites across South Georgia. So it is a unique ministry in that the population that we serve is not being served uh, except by very few agencies within our denomination. It's hard for me to believe that I'm beginning my 11th year as the president. Uh, I've learned a great deal, a great deal from the individuals I've had the opportunity to serve over this course of time. I've tried to keep up with what has been going on in the life of the Pittman Park Church. Uh, I've done that sometimes better than at others, but about two weeks ago I received in the mail a book. And it came autographed and it came from the Willingway Hospital. Some of you know, probably you have a copy of it entitled, When Two Loves Collide. Now I'm not here to push books this morning, but I would like to encourage you, if you don't have a copy of it, to purchase it. It is the story of the life of John and Dot Mooney, their family, and Pittman Park played a very integral part in that family's life. All of those family members were members of this congregation. And when I was here, it's my privilege to get to know each one of them very well. And I had not heard of the publication of the book until it came in the mail, for which I was grateful. And then Jenny Jackson Adams, who went into the ministry uh, during the period of time that I was here as your pastor, is preaching her final sermon this morning at First Methodist in Perry. She has uh, entered into, or will be entering into retirement after 25 years of serving in the pastoral ministry in our conference. And I'm thinking if Jenny is retiring and she went in when I was here, how, do, how old does that make me? It makes me older than I realize, I know that much. And your new pastor, who will be coming next week, Bill Bagwell. He is a dear friend of mine and our families, and he will be bringing with her, with her, with him, uh, a wonderful person, Sue Bagwell, who was Sue Bullington. Her father also was the pastor at Pittman Park, and then he was the district superintendent here at the time that I was the pastor here. So we go back a long way with the Bullingtons. 
In fact, we go back so far with the Bullingtons, they are those who think that I'm Alec Bullington. <laughs> now, I hope you'll realize that Alec Bullington is in his mid-80s or late-80s. <laughs> I'm not there yet, I promise you. But we have served three of the same churches in the course of our ministerial career, and people still have in their minds uh, an image of Alec, and they sometimes see me, and out it comes. I would like to say, though, that is the highest compliment you can receive because Ellick and Margaret Bullington are two of the nicest people you'd ever have an opportunity to know in, in this lifetime. But one Sunday I was finishing my sermon at Vineville Methodist Church. I had served there for eight years prior to going uh, to the presidency of Wesley Glenn. And I thought I had preached uh, Paul a very good sermon, in fact. I was sort of proud of myself. Now, we don't always feel that way by, about our sermons. There are times we wish we were anywhere else but in the pulpit. You know, we'd like to get out as fast as, as you would like to leave. But on this occasion, I thought, well, I've, I've preached a, a pretty strong sermon. And so I went to the back, and people were, you know, filing out as, as they do. And this... Uh, elderly lady came up to where I was standing and she had this smile on her face and she looked at me and she said, Brother Alec, <laughs> this is the finest sermon I think you've ever preached in Bible. <laughs> well, I just took that as a compliment. I certainly didn't say I'm not Brother Alec. I just let it go. But the Lord knows how to humble you very quickly. I don't know if you understand that or not, but he can bring you down pretty fast, but uh, it is good to be uh, here in the church today. We had a great service at, at 840, 845. Years ago, Dr. Noe Langdale, who at that time was the president of Georgia State University, had been invited to speak at Valdosta at the Valdosta Lounge Sports Hall of Fame banquet. Now, Dr. Langdale had grown up in Valdosta. He also had played football at the University of Alabama. He still, I think, was in his football size when he came to speak on that occasion. If you ever knew Noe, you know that he was about five feet eight, I guess, and weighed about 260 pounds. So he had a lot of size to him. But he had the best command of the English language I think I've ever heard from an individual. And he, when he spoke, he, he really bellowed. I mean, you couldn't be sitting there nonchalantly or passive. When Dr. Langdale spoke, he moved you. He moved you once, he moved you twice. He would probably even move Ronnie Pope from the last pew to the first pew. <laughs> And that requires a lot of movement, I guarantee you. <laughs> but then the other side of him was, you didn't always understand what he was saying because his vocabulary was so vast. You know, you were sitting there trying to, trying to figure it out. Now mind you, an athletic banquet in Valdosta is a very, very special occasion. And this particular banquet is held, or was held, in order to acknowledge the accomplishments and the achievements of athletes who were either in the school system, high school system, 
or in the college system. And these individuals, in order to be recognized, had to have won individually or as a team either the state or a national honor. You weren't invited to the banquet simply because you had been a participant on an athletic team. You had to, in essence, you had to be a winner at the highest level. So this was somewhat of the makeup of those who were present on that occasion. Well, Dr. Lindell began his speak in this fashion. He said, is it coincidental that we have gathered in this place at this hour? Is it coincidental that we have come together in this place in this hour? And then no sooner had he asked the question, he answered it. He said, no, there's nothing coincidental about this at all. We cultivate what we honor. We cultivate what we honor. And you know that expression has, has stayed with me ever since I heard him express it. We cultivate the things in life that we consider to be important. And I want you to think with me for a few minutes this morning about what are we cultivating today? What makes such a difference in your life, in my life, what makes such a difference that is deserving of our cultivating it and then, as a consequence, seeing it be honored? You know, in the Talmud, they, it is said that in order to live a successful life or a meaningful life, that an individual should do at least, accomplish at least one of three things. Plant a tree, write a book, or have a baby. Well, we're not all eligible for one of those uh, issues, not as directly as possible. And someone asked the question, what, you know, what brings these three together? Well, think about it. What brings them together is in each instance, if you've accomplished it, you have left something that will live beyond you. You have left something that will last beyond your life. Something that will make a difference in the life of someone who comes after you. A couple of years ago in Macon, there was an article about a family who had come to celebrate Thanksgiving in Macon. The family originated in China, adopted Mrs. Hugay and their son who accompanied them. They arrived in Macon on Thanksgiving Eve. They came to Rose Hill Cemetery, which is one of the big cemeteries in Macon. They immediately went to the custodian of the cemetery and they asked where a certain grave might be located. And upon hearing where that location was, then they retired for the evening. See, they'd come from Maryland. It had been a long trip and they were, they were very tired. But they knew where they wanted to go the next morning so they didn't need to stay in the cemetery any longer that night. 
So early the next morning, Thanksgiving Day, they made their way to this particular grave site. And they gathered around it. Really simple, not ornate. Didn't have a long inscription. But they looked into the, the inscription that was there. William Blount Burke. William Blount Burke. Methodist missionary, 56 years to China. 56 years to China. They brought incense to this gravesite. They brought flowers. They brought some food. And they sat down before the, the tombstone. Well, a reporter upon learning of their trip to the cemetery, asked, would you share the story as to why you're here and what you're doing? And Dr. Hugay said, yes, I'll be glad to. He said, you see, Reverend Burke was a missionary in the area where my family lived. And my grandfather and Two of his closest friends were protesting the warlords in Shanghai, and they were arrested for their protest, and they were placed in prison. And Reverend Burke had the influence by which to go and get them released from prison. But he not only got them released from prison, he went and took them after they after they left the prison doors, he took them and made it possible for them to leave the country. And the day after they left the country, these, these prison guards showed up at my grandfather's house to rearrest him. And we knew as a family, or my family knew, that if he had been rearrested, he would have been killed, along with the others. So Reverend Burke, you see, was there for my family. My grandfather had nine children. My father had six children. And I have a son. Reverend Burke is a legacy on our household tree. A person that I never had the opportunity to meet. And so you see, I am here this day to pay homage and to give thanksgiving to an individual, yes, long deceased, but who will never be forgotten in our family. At the end of the day, what will people say? Even though the day may stretch endlessly, what will people say about what we have cultivated, about what we honor in this life that has been entrusted to us? We spent a great deal of time at annual conference, which was held this past week, as you know. We spent a great deal of time talking about the fact that God has called us into this ministry. 
lay and clergy. And that he doesn't call us except that he equips us. He doesn't send us out unless he has given to us the gifts and graces that are necessary to do his work and to lead others in the same way. It's not something that just is, happens by chance, but it's within his will and, and in his direction. The Apostle Paul gives us these words in our scripture today. And he is saying, in essence, the time of my departure is at hand. And it was. For not long after these words were written, we learned that his life was taken. And instead of letting others write his obituary, he chooses to write his own obituary and gives it to us in this passage. He says, I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's what I want others to know about me. That's what I want others to remember at the end of the day about my life, that I fought the fight. And it comes from a Greek word, which is anon, and it means I gave everything that I had. It is a pouring out, a complete pouring out of an individual in behalf of the cause in which he believed. So Paul was saying, I have given, like the athlete, the great athlete gives everything that he has in order to be successful. Paul is saying, I have given everything that I have in the cause of, of Christ. I have fought. I have agonized. And the word agony comes from right here. Agonized in the cause of Christ. Then he says, I have finished the race. I finished the race. I didn't stop short. I didn't stop short of the goal. I don't know how many of y'all have been involved in, in marathon races, but they, you know, they've become pretty popular. But you know what is popular about the marathon race? The most popular thing about the marathon race, other than feeling good about the fact that you can run five five miles or 10 miles or whatever. It's the t-shirt, <laughs> isn't it? It's the t-shirt. We have a thousand people running now in the marathon race at Wesley Glen. The cherry, it's doing cherry blossom. We started it two years ago, we had 900 this year, we had 1200. And it, I mean to tell you, it was bad weather too, bad weather. But what do people, talk to us the most about? The t-shirt is too large, it's too small, it's the wrong color. I've got a lady who's supposed to have a man's, you know, just let your mind go. I have a brother-in-law who you couldn't have moved him. I don't care what you tried to do, you couldn't move him. Oh, but the only thing you had to say was the Peachtree 500 and he's got t-shirts all over the house all over the house, and I'm thinking to myself, what is it about a t-shirt? What is it? Well, part of it is you finish something. Part of it is it indicates that you not only started, but you finished. And this is what Paul was saying. I finished the race. I didn't stop. 
I have, you know, I have older adults, which means me now. I don't like that thought too much. But I have older adults who I hear say, I've done that. I've been there. Let the young adults do it. Let the children do it. You've heard that. I've had my time. Where do you find that in the Bible? Paul, where do you find that in the scriptures? Where does God say, you've had your time, don't worry about it, let the next generation do it? He doesn't say it, to my knowledge. What he does say is, I have gifted you. And you are to take those gifts and use them as you're able to, to my glory. So there is no such thing as being able to stop short and say, I've accomplished God's will in my life. And that's what Paul was saying. Some of you, some of you watch Nancy Grace. I know you do. I know you do. And I know you've got a varied reaction when you watch her. Um, Nancy is like our third daughter. I was Nancy's pastor at Liberty in, in Macon. I was her pastor when her fiance was murdered. I officiated at Nancy's wedding and I baptized her children. And I'm only saying that to say this. She is one of the most compassionate, loving, giving people you'll ever meet in your lifetime. Okay? And you'll say, if you watch her, I don't know that I've met that side of her. Well, she scares me too sometimes, okay? And I know her very well. But Nancy tells this marvelous story about a friend of hers who had cancer. And this friend, it was recommended that for therapy for her cancer to, to start running. And so she did start running. She, uh, she started preparing herself and she was going to you know, run the short race first, not the mile walk, but the 5K. So she had prepared herself and it was taking place in Central City Park in New York. And she showed up that morning, you know how it is, if you ever do any running, you know how it is. Everybody's out there, you know, limbering up, and legs going in all kinds of directions, and, you know, they all checking each other out, make sure you got the right clothes on, etc. Well, she said, oh, I'm so glad I got here early. I can check all this out. I'm, I'm ready to go. Well, the bullhorn sounded, and off she went, and, and she was running at full speed, and she ran, and she ran, and she ran, and she thought to herself as she was running, I've never run this far before, I don't believe. It's, I don't know, what, what is this? And she looked up, and when she looked up, she realized that she was in the 10K race, not the 5K race. And there is a difference, I promise you. But then she didn't know what to do. Do I keep going? Do I stop? What do I do? And Nancy says, no, she didn't stop. She kept going. She kept going, even though she had not prepared for that race until she had crossed the finish line. Okay, you've got to understand there's a correlation here between Nancy's life and this runner. Not the same person. Nancy thought she was going to live a quiet life with her husband and be a teacher of journalism somewhere like at Mercer or where she where she's from. And then her fiance was, was murdered. 
her quiet life did not turn out to be the life that she expected. And so the comment she made about this runner was it was not the race for which she signed up for, and she said this reverently, by God, but it was the race that she was in, and she did not quit. The first time I heard Nancy tell that story was in Boston. We were at a major UMA conference, hundreds of people were there, some of the people thought we should have brought in this Christian theologian instead of this television personality. But when she told that story, almost everybody that was there knew exactly what she was saying. It may not be the race that you signed up for, and they knew that it applied to her life. But by God, it's the race that you're in. You don't quit. They gave her a standing ovation. A standing ovation. Because they saw someone who had not quit, even in the midst of tremendous adversity. Paul said, you finished the race. I have finished the race. And then finally he said, I've kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Well, don't you want to hear someone who knows you well say that about you? Don't you want to hear, hear those words, even if maybe you're not here anymore, but don't you want those words spoken about you? He not only committed his life to Christ, he fought, he finished, and he kept the faith. One more story. My father-in-law was the regional director for the Internal Revenue. He would be so embarrassed he would be so embarrassed at what's going on right now. He was so ethical that he would tell my wife, don't ever even pick up one of these black U.S. government pens if I forget and leave it at the house because it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the government. That's how embarrassed he would be at what's taking place now. But he told me on one occasion, he said, Billy, I want you to meet somebody before you die. I didn't know who he was going to talk about. had no idea. He said, there is an individual by the name of Randolph Thrower, and I hope that you will meet him someday. He didn't recommend many people, so I, he got my attention. My first trustee meeting at Westland College, I'm standing there, and you know how it is, people come around, glad to have you as a trustee, etc. This very nice looking gentleman came over, gray hair. He said, Dr. Oliver, we've not met. My name is Randolph Thrower. 
Oh, I thought to myself, here he is. The very person that Mr. Davis wanted me to meet. Here he is, right here. Mr. Davis, why did you want me to meet Randolph Thrower? Why was that so important? Billy, he was the commissioner of the Internal Revenue. And on one occasion, the President of the United States sent his aide, Haldeman, and asked him to deliver some confidential list of names. And he refused. He said, no, these names are confidential. You cannot receive them. And he said, but you misunderstand. I'm here representing the President of the United States. And Mr. Holder said, no, you misunderstand. I am not at liberty to share confidential information. And Mr. Holderman said, well, what do you want me to tell the president? Tell him that I have affixed my resignation and that you're bringing that because that's more important to me than violating my honor. Do you hear anything in that? Do you hear anything in that and what we're listening to today? I don't mean in every instance. I, I certainly don't mean that. I, I know the Internal Revenue's got a lot of wonderful, skilled, ethical people, but do you hear what I'm saying? What are we cultivating in our society today? What are the values? What constitutes honor? I knew when I was in the presence of Randolph Thrower, I was in the presence of a great man, a man of character, a devout Presbyterian who felt his faith was more important than his position. You know how small the world is. A couple of years ago, I had a young couple come to see me about marrying them. I had never met the young man, you know, how, how often is you. Sometimes I know the bride, but not the, not the groom until they come for conversation. And so he said, my mother's an attorney in Atlanta and her name is Patricia. And I said, oh, that's good. My wife's name Patricia too. Yes, sir. And said, my grandmother and grandfather are still alive and my mother's an attorney and my grandfather's an attorney. And I said, oh, really? I said, who is your grandfather? Randolph Thrower is my grandfather. And I looked at that young man in the eyes and I said, you just don't know the legacy that you have. The legacy that, that you're carrying with you. Paul wrote his own obituary. He wrote about what he wanted people to remember about him that he fought, that he finished, he kept the faith. At the end of the day, what will people say about us? I hope they can say at least this much, if not more. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who have gone before us and who've led the way and for those who stand with us and encourage us to do what is pleasing and right in thy sight in all the decisions that we make. May we learn to cultivate 
the things that really are worthy of honor. For we pray in Christ's holy name.